Please be seated. I love to read. My favorite books are novels by 18th or 19th century British authors, authors such as Jane Austen, George Eliot, Charles Dickens. But recently, I realized that I was in a rut, and I needed to change up my choice of reading material. So I decided to try my hand at reading something different, detective stories. The first thing I discovered in this new venture is that, unlike Jane Austen's novels, detective stories do not make good bedtime reading. One night, I lay awake for hours after reading the description of how one of the characters met his demise. Sleep proved to be very elusive that night. The next thing I realized is that I had to work hard to keep up with the storyline. Clues were scattered throughout every chapter, like dirty laundry in a college dorm room. I had a difficult time keeping track of them all. I knew that some of the clues were intended to throw me off, but I also knew that somewhere in the thick of all the details, there were a few crucial ones that would point the way to solving the mystery. Well, in our gospel reading this morning, the evangelist John provides us with a number of details in his account of the resurrection. But unlike the authors of detective stories, every detail is important in this eyewitness account. There are no false clues. And taken together, they point the way to something no one saw coming. The launch of the glorious life to come in the middle of life as it is. Now, John's account begins with a detail about time. It was the first day of the week. And then he recounts for us a foot race between Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, whom we are told at the end of the next chapter is the author himself. Most likely, Peter is twice the age of the beloved disciple, which may account for the fact why John got there first. Now, he looks inside the tomb and notices linen burial cloths lying there. And then Peter arrives, and he too goes right into the tomb, unlike John. And we are told that he notices the linen cloths also, as well as the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head. But there's something peculiar about the placement of the face cloth. It's not folded up with the other, it's not with the other cloths, but it's folded up in a place by itself. Now, the only other evangelist to mention these linen cloths is Luke. And he does so as more of an aside toward the end of his account of the resurrection. But John pays particular attention to them. Now, the standard burial practice at that time was to wrap the body of a deceased person in a long white cloth or series of cloths, kind of like a giant gauze bandage extending from the feet to the neck. 
And John told us at the end of chapter 19 that Nicodemus supplied 75 pounds of spices, which would have been poured on Jesus' body as the cloths were wound around it. The spices would have bound the cloths to the body. But the impression that John gives us in chapter 20 is that these cloths are lying on the stone surface of the tomb as if the body had suddenly dematerialized underneath them and the spices had disintegrated, leaving the cloth lying on the floor like a deflated balloon. It's highly unlikely that anyone attempting to steal Jesus' body would have stopped to remove the cloths first. And even if they had, they would have been lying in shreds. So, something unusual must have happened to Jesus' body. Now, there's one more detail to note. Peter and John go back to their homes. It was Mary who had fetched them. She had gotten to the tomb first. And now she remains there. And Jesus himself appears. Yet John tells us that Mary mistakes him for a gardener. Why make mention of this? The other evangelists do not. Well, as we ponder these details, it's important to keep in mind the words with which John begins his gospel. In chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. Do those words sound familiar? You may recognize them as the same three words with which the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, begins. John draws upon the account of how creation began as he starts off his gospel narrative in order to inform his readers that creation was launched through the Word made flesh. He was there in the beginning, and everything that was made was made through him. And he has now become one of us. His name is Jesus. So now, as John draws his gospel to a close, he draws upon the book of Genesis again. In Genesis, a garden is where everything went wrong. But in chapter 20 of John's Gospel, a garden tomb becomes the focal point for good news. God has put everything right, just as he promised. And now, through Jesus, God's new creation has been launched because the power of sin has been defeated. Jesus is raised from the dead. And it is morning on the first day. John has laid out these details, particularly about the day of the week, the linen cloths, and Mary's encounter with the risen Jesus to point to one conclusion, that through Jesus, God has redeemed his creation and launched his renewal. This is the startling conclusion to Jesus' life and death that no one saw coming. It is so unexpected 
that at first some of Jesus' followers didn't even understand. John writes in verse 9, As yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. But why didn't they see it coming? Jesus had prepared them for this ahead of time. Well, there are two good reasons for this. The first was his brutal death. Although Jesus told them plainly on several occasions that he would suffer and be put to death, they did not comprehend what he was telling them. A Messiah is not supposed to get himself killed. There had been uh, Jewish men before and some after Jesus who some thought would be a Messiah while they were alive, like Judas of Galilee and Simon bar Kokhba. But they, like Jesus, were brutally put to death by the Romans. And the other obstacle was about resurrection from the dead. Some Jews in Jesus' time had begun to think that there would be something like a resurrection from the dead, but there was no consensus on what that would entail. However, it was assumed that resurrection was something which would occur at the end of the present age, inaugurating the age to come. And when this resurrection occurred, all of creation would be renewed at the same time, the heavens, the earth, as well as human beings. And some of the Psalms lend credence to this kind of thinking, like Psalm 104, which we recited this morning, particularly verses 29 and 30. When you take away their breath, they die and are turned again to their dust. When you let your breath go forth, they shall be made, and you shall renew the face of the earth. So from the point of view of the disciples, Jesus was not supposed to die. Resurrection was not something that would occur until the end of the present age, and it would occur for everyone and everything at the same time. But they were wrong on all counts. It didn't take them long to come around. Jesus himself convinced most of them. But later generations have the Apostle Paul to thank, in particular, for expounding upon the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. For example, in verse 18 of our reading this morning from his letter to the Colossians, Paul writes that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What Paul is saying is that Jesus was raised first in this present age and that he is the prototype, in a manner of speaking, for what will happen to us in the age to come. For all who believe in him and die, we too will be raised with a spiritual body and we will have everlasting life. 
This is what we have to look forward to. But there is also an aspect to the resurrection of Jesus that has implications for us right now in this present age. Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthians, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. What Paul means is that although he is being persecuted for the sake of the gospel and his body is not bearing up well under the effects of this stress, the life of the resurrected Jesus within him is becoming stronger, more vibrant. In many respects, the world is still the same. It's Paul who's different. This is what the launch of the new creation in the middle of the present age looks like. Despite our natural physical weakness, which is evidence of our mortality, New life within us is underway already. There will, still, there will still be disappointments and sickness, heartaches and loss, and eventually death. But there will also be joy and reconciliation and astounding miracles, all of which point to the life of the age to come. It breaks into the lives of those who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior in this present age. So when Paul writes about the patient endurance of the Thessalonians as they experience persecution and about the astounding generosity of the Christians in Macedonia despite their poverty, he is describing what the life of the age to come looks like in them from a practical standpoint. A transformation of heart and mind is taking place. The resurrected life of Jesus had begun to take hold in them. The presence of sin was still apparent. There were still ungodly behavior and divisions among these early Christians. Yet, there was also evidence in them of aspects of Jesus' nature. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And so much so that the unbelievers around them took notice. In his book, The Rise of Christianity, historian Rodney Stark cites examples of how a number of Christians risked their lives for their pagan neighbors and for complete strangers during a series of plagues which afflicted, afflicted the world in the first centuries after Jesus' resurrection. Care was offered to anyone who was sick, and especially to those pagans who had been abandoned by their own family members. When a plague struck a town, the healthy people would leave and leave behind the sick. 
Stark makes the case for how the sacrificial aid provided for the sick by Christians, which cost some of them their lives, established the groundwork for what later became hospitals and schools and shelters for the poor. Their actions were a testimony to the new life at work in them through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Stark also cites the 4th century Roman Emperor Julian, who had disavowed his Christian faith. He writes that Julian launched a campaign to establish pagan charitable organizations in an effort to match the work which Christians were doing. In a letter to the pagan high priest of Galatia in 362 AD, Julian complained that pagans needed to equal the virtues of Christians. For recent Christian growth in numbers was caused by, quote, their moral character, even if pretended, and by, quote, their benevolence towards strangers and care for the graves of the dead. In this letter, Julian also wrote that the impious Galileans, his derogatory term for Christians, support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Apparently, Christians were making his administration look bad. In the 21st century, much of the work that Christians undertook for their neighbors in need, as an outpouring of the new life they found in Jesus, has been institutionalized. Many secular organizations and agencies do this work now. But people are still suffering throughout our city and especially in the neighborhoods around our church, there are still unmet or undermet needs. What more is the Lord calling us to do? How might we join forces with other churches? What works of kindness might cause the Julians of our century to say, those Christians are making us look bad. I'm not talking about good works to perform, as if we had to earn our salvation, but actions that arise because the life of the age to come has taken hold in us right now through Jesus Christ. And this new life is spilling out as generous love for others, even for people who despise us. Like the details the evangelist John gives us in our gospel reading this morning, the details of our lives in Christ are to point to the launch of God's new creation, begun through the death and resurrection of Jesus. May our lives point to this even more boldly, more joyfully, for the sake of the world around us in the weeks and months and years ahead. Amen. <laughs>